Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and, they, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the, of the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was late, already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. The late apologist and author Ravi Zacharias said, When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, the crowd wanted to crown him as their king, but he roundly rejected their designs for him because he had not come to earth to lead a nation in its political pursuits. He was absolutely clear when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus reminded his listeners that his call was not to one particular nation, nor was his kingship one of political power. Rather, it was to rule the hearts of men and women who understood his higher call for us to be citizens of heaven and sons and daughters of God. When I first began um, this working on this message, and I've had a lot of time to think about it, obviously. Um, I began to work on this right before the world changed and COVID-19 kind of like upset the apple cart. I gave this title to the, uh, uh, the message, the title, The King is Coming. That was my original title for this message when I first began working on this. And this seems really fitting to me because this text is about the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And and it's a text where Jesus clearly embraces the title of Messiah and King. Jesus rides into the city as the King. And, 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 And this is an important development in the story. Right, that we've been following through uh, throughout Mark, because this is the point in the story where Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that that he is all that they hoped for. Now, before this point, Jesus made it clear that he did not want them to talk about this. He didn't want them to talk about him being the Messiah. He did not want this openly discussed. In fact, in Peter chapter nine, if you remember. Um, excuse me, uh, Mark chapter 9, Peter says to, to Jesus, you are the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood hasn't shown this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And I'm going to build my church on that particular truth. Jesus, when he was transfigured, he, when he showed his glory to his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, he said to them not to tell anybody about it. And even when the demons themselves would, he would encounter Jesus, they would confess that he is the Lord and he would tell them to shut up and he would make them be quiet because he had not yet want him, anybody to know who he was. In fact, throughout the first 10 chapters of the Gospel of Mark, what we see is Jesus making a point to keep a lid on his identity, that he is the Messiah. And the re- reason for that is because he was not ready at that time to reveal himself. He was not ready at that time, to show who he was because it was not the right moment. It was, he was waiting for the right time. He was waiting, waiting for the appointed time for him. 
And that time now, that moment had finally come. That's where we are in the story. And as we're going to see, this is the turning point of the entire story. This is the place where the the story really takes a big dramatic turn. I don't know if you realize it, but the first 10 chapters of the Gospel of Mark cover a period of about three and a half years. The first 10 chapters cover three and a half years of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And, And it really serves as the background of really the last seven chapters. So it covers about three and a half years, but the last seven chapters, Mark chapter 11 through 16, I don't know if you realize, only covers one week. That's the, that's the span of time that, that Mark takes seven chapters to, to unpack, which is Passion Week, which, is, which begins with Palm Sunday and then ends with what? The resurrection. Right. Mark takes seven chapters to unpack that. Now, That's why so many commentaries say that Mark is really just a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And so again, Mark, and so chapter 11 begins this final week. And and this event right here, this moment right here, this triumphal entry is the starting point of this final week. And it begins with Palm Sunday where Jesus announces by his actions that he is indeed the long-awaited King and Messiah. And that's why initially, that's why I began initially to name this, the king is coming. But a lot has changed since I started working on this particular text. After seeing how people have reacted and treated each other over this, and after some frustrating and difficult conversations with a number of people, including a number of fellow Christians... I felt compelled to change the title from the king is coming to the king has come. Because brothers and sisters, that is the truth. The king has come. You see, we live at a time right now where many Christians have forgotten this truth or many Christians have just never been taught this truth. And the truth is simply this, that Christ is right now at this moment the king. That Jesus Christ at this moment reigns from on high. That he right now is on the throne. He is the sovereign reigning king right now. One of the theological themes that we have seen throughout the entire book of Mark and throughout this entire series as we have walked through the gospel of Mark one step at a time is the sovereignty of God. We see it over and over and over again. We're reminded again and again and again that God is sovereign and in control. God is absolutely, positively, without any question, in control of all things. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is not some soon-to-be king. He is already the king. He is already the sovereign reigning king of the entire universe. He rules right now. He is the king in this moment. You're alive right now in this moment by his will. The next breath that you take is given to you by his divine consent. Everything that surrounds your life is firmly fixed in his hands and he is in control. And this is a truth that many Christians either have forgotten or just simply have not learned. Because what you will hear many people say is one day, one day, when Christ is king. One day when Jesus is the king, when Jesus finally is the ruler of all things, then at that point things will get better. Then this will no longer happen. When Christ is finally the king, as if what is happening today, as if what what has happened in the past is somehow beyond his control, as if his reign doesn't begin until some other time in the future, As if what is happening today has somehow caught God by surprise, that he didn't see COVID-19 coming, that he didn't see the tension, politically speaking, between the president and our governor about whether or not we can meet here. As if God, as if what is happening wasn't even ordained by God himself, as if what is happening isn't under his divine authority. If there's one thing that you can know for sure, after we have spent 55 years, 55 parts in this series. This is 56, by the way. 
After 55 parts of this series, and after our series about trusting God when nothing makes sense, and after our series waiting on God, and after our theology class, if there's one thing that you can know for sure is the fact that none of which that we are going through right now is outside of God's control. Not any of it. God is absolutely sovereign. So church family, please understand this. Christ is the king. He reigns from heaven right now. All things, everything, works out according to the counsel of his own will. And all things are working out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the promise that we hold on to. Because he's fully in control. And that's what we have seen. And that's what we actually see in this text right here, by the way. That at no point in history has God not ever been in control. In fact, turn with me again to Mark chapter 11. And let's look at the text to see. Beginning in verse 1, it says... Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem at Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, and I stopped there because this is a part of verse that part of the verse that we really need to really kind of reflect on because this sets up the entire scene. This is the background information that helps us to really kind of understand kind of like what's going to happen next. If you remember, Jesus has just come back to Jerusalem, right? And and, and right before this moment, what did he do? Right before this moment, he performed one of the most incredible miracles of his entire ministry, which is what? The raising of Lazarus from the dead. If you remember, in John chapter 11, as we just recently talked about in our, in our series, Waiting on God, Jesus returned to the area of Bethany, and he knew that by coming there, he was going to be his, he's signing his death warrant. He returned to the area of Bethany, which is near Jerusalem, to raise Lazarus from the dead. And if you remember the story, right, this is where Jesus gets word that his friend is sick. And Jesus says, we're going to wait two days before we go. And in the process, Lazarus dies. And Jesus said that this was for the glory of God that Lazarus died. If you want to have something to struggle with, there's a truth right there, right? That he said, this is for the glory of God. And he said, I was glad I wasn't there because he wanted to to help his his followers to to grow in their understanding of him and and actually grow in their, their faith. And then, right, when they get to Bethany, Lazarus is not only dead, but he is verifiably dead. He's been dead for four days. He has, he's been dead without question, and, and, and for four days, his, his body has already been prepared, and he's been laid in the tomb. And Jesus tells his sisters, I am the resurrection and the life, and he tells them to roll away the stone, which is, his sister says, don't do that, right? because he's going to stink, because he's already decomposing. But he says, roll away the stone, and he says, Lazarus, come out, and he comes out. This man who had been dead for four days, who had been decomposing, comes to new life. This is an earth-shattering, mind-blowing miracle. And this miracle was on the heels of another miracle he had just done, if you remember, when he healed the blind man, Bartimaeus, on his way there. And if you remember, right, that this this was a miracle... That was really the capstone of three and a half years of incredible, unimaginable ministry. Jesus, if you, if you recall, as we began the story in, in Mark, he was a nobody from Nazareth, which was nowhere. And he became the most famous person in Judea. And people flocked to him and came to him from all over the place to be near him and to touch him and to be close to him. Because Why? Because he'd had done all kinds of miracles. He'd healed all kinds of people from different infirmities, fevers and illnesses and, and lame, broken limbs and paralytics. He'd cast out thousands and thousands and thousands of demons. He had calmed the storm, a raging sea, not once but twice. He walked on water. And then he fed 5,000 Jewish people and 4,000 Gentile people with a couple of small fish and a, and a few loaves of bread. Probably less than what you have in your pantry at home. And then he taught some of the most shocking things, like that he has the prerogative to forgive sins. And that, that he's, the, he's the Lord and the owner of the Sabbath. And that Sabbath was not made, and the, 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 was not, I mean, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And he spent time with 
and ate with sinners and tax collectors. And not only that, he has rebuked the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. And he defied their man-made rules to their face. And then only that, he brought hope to the people that had no hope. And he was compassionate, wildly compassionate. And he talked about how if you're going to be first in the kingdom, you've got to be last. And if you're going to be great, you must be humble and the servant of all. Right? This is now after all of this. Here Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives looking down at the city of Jerusalem. And the time now has come for him to openly, finally declare who he is. What people expect, what they think he might be. Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives preparing for that moment when he'll publicly embrace the title of Messiah and King. Now the Mount of Olives is about half a mile away from Jerusalem and it stands 200 feet above the city and it's a perfect vantage point to survey the city of the king, the city of David. I just imagine Jesus taking in that moment before everything changes, just looking at the city that's going to reject him, the city that he loved so much. Because this is the moment where everything changes. This is the moment where the story really accelerates toward the cross. This is the moment where there is no going back. And it's the moment that the world itself changes. You think COVID-19 changed the world? Nothing like this moment. And then it says, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, it will, you will find a colt tied and, and when, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colts? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, this might seem like just really a simple part of the, the narrative details to kind of help move the story along and, and kind of like, you know, get to the next important part. But this text right here is very, very important for us because this once again proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is completely in control. He is completely and totally sovereign. In fact, in this part of the story, two very important things are happening. Two important things are happening in this part of the story. First of all, what's happening here is Jesus is again proving his omniscience. He is proving that he knows all things. If you remember Mark chapter 2, he demonstrated that he knew the thoughts of the people that were in the room. If you remember, they lowered this man down from the ceiling after tearing the roof off. And Jesus says something nobody expected him to say. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And people sat there in the room going, wait a minute. They didn't say it out loud. They were thinking it. Why is he saying that? He's blaspheming. Why is he saying something like that? And Jesus knew their thoughts and he confronted them and said, I know your thoughts. Why do you say in your heart? Jesus knew the thoughts of men, and he still does. He is omniscient. And if you remember also Mark chapter 6, a little detail that reminds us that he knows everything. Mark chapter 6, Jesus is on, on, on a mountain by himself, and his disciples have left, and they have went away across the lake, in the middle of the lake, two miles away, and they get caught up in the storm. If you remember that story, this is when Jesus walks to them. He's, they're in the middle of the lake, in the middle of a storm, a couple of miles away. Jesus is up on a mountain, and it says that he sees that they are having trouble, that they're basically struggling to survive. Now, this seeing is not physical sight because it's impossible to see somebody at nighttime in the middle of a lake two miles away in a storm where the waves are pitching up 10 feet high. You can't see them. What he's talking about here, what the Bible is talking about is Christ sees it omnisciently. Well, it's the same idea here. Jesus demonstrates that he knows details about things that he hasn't even physically seen yet because, because he's not been there yet. Remember, he's just arrived in Jerusalem. He hasn't even been in the city proper yet. He hasn't been in quite some time. So there's no way that he would know these details except by his omniscience. Jesus tells his, dis his disciples in vivid detail that when they go into town, they're going to find a donkey. And not just the donkey, but one that's never been ridden on before. It's a very specific detail. And he says, he says you're going to see it right when you walk into town. Another very specific detail. It's going to be right there tied up. 
Again, clear, specific details. That gives you a sense that he knows what he's talking about. I'll tell you, my wife, she knows things. I mean, she knows, she knows where everything else in the house is. Right? So I'm like, uh, Kim, do you know where um, you know, the ibuprofen is? She'll say, yeah, it's in the medicine cabinet on the third shelf down, just halfway to the back, underneath like three blankets and two toothpicks or something like that. I mean, she knows like specific details, right? She knows the answer. Like this, this is Jesus. He knows the clear, specific details about this donkey. And not just that, he says, if anyone stops you and asks you, what are you doing? Just said that the Lord needs it and he will send it, you know, right, right back here. And, and they're, they're going to actually let you go. They're going to let you go without question. You don't, you're not going to even have to give them your name or your address. You're not going to have to put up a security deposit. Nothing. You just say that the Lord needs it and they're going to let you go. Now, when I was younger, I worked for my dad and uh, he would send me on all kinds of errands. And, and I, would, I would go pick up materials at the material store. I would go pick up contracts and paperwork. You know, I would go pick up checks. I would go to the bank and make deposits. I'd do all kinds of things that, you know, that he didn't want to do. And I always hated the part about talking to people because I always I just hated it when I get into a conversation with someone and they start asking me questions I don't know the answers to or they say something to me I don't know how to respond to, right? Like, Hey, Sherman, you can't do that. Well, my dad said I could. What does that mean, right? And, and I hated walking into these situations where I didn't know all the answers, and my dad would just tell me, go to this place, go talk to Bob, and, and tell him this. And if he says this, then tell him that. Right? I hated being the middleman. It was just such an uncomfortable thing because I hated walking into that situation like not knowing what was going to happen next. And, and think about this. Jesus is telling his disciples, right? he's telling these two disciples to go into town and without asking anybody's permission, walk up to somebody's donkey that you don't know, untie it, and then walk away with it like it belongs to you. Right? And then bring it back here. And then if somebody asks you, what are you doing? You say, hey, the Lord needs it, and he'll bring it back. I imagine it probably would have been an uncomfortable errand. I would have been really uncomfortable then. Right? There must have been a certain amount of fear, but, you know, because, you know, what, what, what if... <laughs> What if they say, you can't do that, you can't have that donkey? What if, worse, you know, they shout, thief, right? I mean, one of the most popular um, videos online, or was at one point, was this guy messing with his mom. And every time they'd go to the store, he'd catch her like two hours away, and, he, and, and she'd be holding on to something and looking at it, and he would shout really, really loud, she's stealing! And she would panic and then put it back on the shelf. You know what I mean? It's like it's a terrifying experience. So I, I can imagine they're, they're worried about that. And what if they arrest us? Well, Jesus, right? Jesus says, don't worry. You just tell them that I sent you. And so they, they do it. right? And they do exactly what, they, what he says. And the donkey is exactly where Jesus is. is he said that it was. And, and somebody didn't, did ask, right? What are you doing untying that donkey? And they say, hey, the Lord wants it. He'll bring it back. And guess what? They let him go. This is a demonstration, clearly a demonstration of Christ's omniscience. He knew all the details. He knew all the parts and the pieces. And this demonstration is also a demonstration of his sovereign control because he has planned out these details. It's not that he just knew what the details were. Like, it's not that he just knew what the details were. He had planned the details. And not just moments before and not just days before, but centuries before. Because the second thing that happens is that Jesus fulfills a prophecy, a 500-year-old prophecy about him that very moment. He fills a 500-year-old prophecy about himself in that moment. Because the prophet Zechariah wrote about this very event 500 years before it happened. In fact, look at Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Right, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a donkey. A very specific prophecy. Jesus filled, fulfilled a specific 500-year-old prophecy. 
which is exactly what Matthew in his gospel says. He says that this took place, this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. Jesus was demonstrating very clearly that he was all-knowing and that he was in full control. He's in control of the past, he's in control of the present, and he's in control of the future. That's what we see here. And then it says, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, given the gravity of what Jesus is doing, this particular text might not seem like it, but it's a very important text for us to look at as well very closely because it's really easy to overlook the details here because let's just be honest. This is weird. I mean, have you read this and thought, why are they, why are they doing that? Right? I mean, we know that Jesus is riding a donkey. Why are, they, why are they doing this? You know? There's a lot of details here that really should help us to see who Jesus is. First thing I want you to realize is that nowhere in the scriptures do you see Jesus riding a donkey besides here. In all the gospel narratives, you never see Jesus on the back of a donkey. Right? Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, you never see him riding on a chariot. You never see him riding on a donkey or anything else except here. Except one other time, which was when he was in his mother's womb. That's it. Everywhere else he walked. The only times that he was on a donkey was inside of his mother's womb when he came into the world, and then here where he declares he's the king. Now, the other time, now the fact of the matter is, is riding a donkey then is immediately significant. And it should cause us to see why this event is important. And then the fact is, the detail, the donkey was never ridden. Again, for us, we go, okay, so what? But it's a highly significant detail because only animals that were never ridden or used as beasts of burden were suitable for sacrifices. I don't know if you realize that. And the only animals that were ever used or suitable for pulling the Ark of the Covenant were animals that had never been given a burden or ever been ridden. And so the fact that this donkey had never been ridden is a sign that it was going to be used for a sacred purpose. Jesus riding on this donkey into Jerusalem was a symbolic, sacred act. Right? Him riding on a donkey that never been, had, had never been ridden has all kinds of Old Testament in, imagery woven into it. And then there's the fact that everyone else who was going to Jerusalem on Passover was going on foot. Everybody else was on foot. That was the tradition. You walked to Jerusalem. But here Jesus is riding on the donkey and this act, at this moment, reminded everybody around them of a very important historical event before. Solomon's, King David's son, Solomon's coronation, when, when Solomon became the king. Centuries before this happened, in 1 Kings chapter 1, beginning in verse 32, we read, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, so that... So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zidok the priest and, and Nathan the prophet there anoint him as king over Israel. This act of Jesus is a, is a, is a flashback. It's an allusion to that event. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this donkey is a direct connection to his forefather Solomon becoming the king. This is highly symbolic. And, right, it's like Jesus was on a, had a megaphone shouting, the king has come, and I am he. And the thing that you need to see is not that Jesus just did that, but the people recognized that. They understood what was happening. They saw it. They, they recognized that he was the king. And they responded to that. And how did they respond? By spreading their garments before him. Which again, which we would ask in our modern day context, why would they do something like that? Well, doing so was mimicking an Old Testament story where another king was, was pronounced to be king over Israel. 
In fact, it was, the, it was when Jehu was anointed king over Israel. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13 is actually the reference. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is the king. You see, that when people took their garments off and they laid them before Jesus, was symbolically saying, we get it, you are the king. Right? Them doing that was an act of submission. Them doing that was them saying, we recognize exactly who you are. And then the palm branches were similar. This tradition actually began back with the Maccabean revolt. We don't see that in the Bible, but we do have historical record of that. It's when the Maccabean revolt happened against the Greeks, when the Greeks were trying to force the Jews to worship Greek gods, and they weren't having it. And the Maccabeans revolted and pushed them out and made an alliance with Rome, Right? And they were celebrated with what? Palm branches. You see, Jesus is not simply riding in on a donkey. This is not just, you know, just an act that really has no specific meaning. This is highly symbolic. He is, he is fulfilling a highly symbolic prophecy that left no doubt what he was saying about himself, what he is claiming to be. He's making it absolutely clear that he is the king and the Messiah. And this is really important for us, especially now, because there's a growing issue in Christianity, especially in America today, this idea that God, for some reason, has two different plans of salvation for his people. I don't know if you realize that, but there is a growing, I mean, I'm hearing it more and more, that people are saying that there's two different plans of salvation. There are people that believe that God has one plan for Christians and then another complete different plan for Jews in a way of offering salvation, right? Like the, the, like the idea, the, the theology is that plan A failed. Like, like Christ offered salvation and it failed. And so the Gentiles that had been offered the kingdom and included in the church in its plan B. That wasn't part of God's original design. So there's now two different plans of salvation. One for the Jews and how they get saved, which is different than from the Gentiles. And this is actually a weakness in, um, in dispensational theology when, it, when, that, when that framework is pushed too far, when people push too far on, on, on those ideas. You end up with a breakdown in the unity of the gospel and this, is just, this isn't just some fringe idea. I want you to understand, you might not have ever heard of this, but it's not a fringe idea. It's actually several prominent Christians who hold this view and teach this view right now, especially a particular famous, and I mean really famous, influential megachurch pastor in Texas. He espouses his view. And this is a man who has written dozens and dozens and dozens of books on the end times. Right? The four blood moons, I think, was probably one of the last ones, or maybe, I mean, that's the last one I saw. And, and, and he is seen by many people as end times expert, but he does not believe that Christians should even try to evangelize Jews at all. He says that it's a waste of time to share the gospel with them. I don't know if you realize that. There are people that believe that you shouldn't evangelize Jews. It's a waste of time. In fact, in one of his books, he says that Jesus, the Jews will not be saved by the gospel. That they will be saved by what? The old covenant is what he firmly believes. And he said the reason for that, and the reason why we don't hold the Jews accountable for, for denying that Jesus is the Messiah, is he says that Jesus never actually claimed to be the Messiah. Right? That's what he said. The Jews will not be judged for denying Christ as a Messiah because Jesus never actually claimed to be the, the Messiah, which except for that part where Peter said, you are the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. And, and, and Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter. Right? And then this, this part right here where Jesus rides into Jerusalem, specifically fulfilling the messianic prophecy found in Zechariah. Jesus is absolutely the Messiah. By riding in on that donkey, Jesus is shouting out loud and clear, the Messiah has come, the King has come, and everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, are responsible to respond to that truth. And the, reason, and, and, and the people who were there, the people that were in that moment knew that he was the Messiah. Notice it says, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. That's what it literally means. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You see, these people recognize that he was not just some prophet. That he was not just some rabbi who was teaching. That he was not some rebel leader. That he was literally the descendant of David. And that he was there to bring forth that kingdom. That he was the promised king to come. That he was the king that everybody was waiting for. And they were declaring it and they were shouting it. And the city was electric with celebration. They promised, the promised king of David had, had come. By riding into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey with the crowd celebrating, Jesus was announcing to everyone, to the common Jews, to the elite religious people, and even the Roman occupiers themselves, he was announcing that the king has come. And by the way, I don't know if you realize it, but that message was clearly received. Because when Jesus was crucified, they nailed a tablet above his head with something written on it. And you know what, that, what was written up there? It said, King of the Jews. Everybody knew, right? As, as Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, what you have said so. Or in other words, yep, I am. Everyone clearly knew what Jesus was doing and what he was claiming. The only problem is, is everybody, including the apostles, thought Jesus was there to be the king of Israel only. That he was only going to be the king of the Jews. They were expecting for Jesus to lead a military revolt against the Roman Empire. That's why Jesus says, my, my kingdom is not of this world. Right? That Jesus was there only to save the Jews. But that is why, that is not why Christ has come. He didn't come into the world to be the king over a small little nation. He came to reveal that he is already the king of the entire universe. He didn't need a war horse. He didn't need an army to prove that. He didn't need any of that to defeat his real and our real enemy. He didn't come to expel Rome from Jerusalem. Jesus came to conquer sin and death and the devil himself once and for all. And he did that through his sacrificial death on the cross and his victorious resurrection, proving that the battle has been won. Brothers and sisters, the greatest battle that you will ever face, the greatest battle that you will ever have to worry about has been won. The victory is already done. The end has already been written. You are already victorious in Christ Jesus because Jesus paid it all. Through his finished work on the cross, Jesus proved beyond all doubt that he is not the king of some small people in a tiny little country. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He is the alpha, and he is the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is Yahweh incarnate. He is the great I am. And Jesus' resurrection proves what Mark has been declaring from the very beginning of the gospel, that Jesus is the son of the living God, the sovereign reigning ruler of all things. And he has no rival, he has no equal, and now and forever as God, he does reign, as we sang this morning. Brothers and sisters, the king has already come, he already rules, and one day he will come back and he will make all things right when he does. But until that day happens, God's plan for history, God's plan for redemption, and God's plan for your life will continue on just as he has planned. And even in the darkest, most difficult parts of your life, like the, like the times we're facing now, and even the worst things that you're going to face in the future, we can know that Jesus is and always will be and always has been the sovereign reigning king of all things. Of all things. Brothers and sisters, say it with me. All things. So we began this particular series here with... Three very clear goals. It's my, been my goal to, to, to live up to, the, it's been my aim to live up to these goals every single message. The first goal was that I wanted to share the gospel every time I preached. I want to share the gospel with anyone who was lost. I wanted for people who do not know Christ to come to Christ by faith. That they would accept his offer of salvation through faith and repentance. 
Number two, I wanted to help those who know Christ to know him better. For those who have a relationship with Christ to grow in that relationship with him. Because discipleship is my passion. I want to help you to learn more about Christ and to become more and more like Jesus. And the third goal is I wanted to help you to take action based on what you actually were learning. I want to help mobilize you to go where Christ is leading you and to do what Christ is calling you to do. The Christian life is not simply meant to live for ourselves. It's meant to be lived on mission for Christ. And I want to help you to live that way. And so that is my three goals. And in light of that, I just want to wrap up today's message on this text and what it means. This text means for these these three goals. And first of all, for those who do not know Christ, if you're someone either here or online and you have not consciously made a decision to believe in Christ and follow him. Or maybe you're someone who made a profession of faith years ago, you know, at an altar call, but you know, like you're not following Jesus. You know that nothing's changed inside of you. You know that you really haven't actually come into a relationship with Christ. If you don't know who he is, what I want you to know is this. Jesus is the king, the sovereign reigning king of the world. And he is God in the flesh. And he is the Lord of the entire cosmos. But that's not even the astounding part. The most astounding part is that this king, Jesus, by his grace, loves you. That's the astounding part. He loves you and he's inviting you to have a relationship with him through faith. He is calling you to trust in him. And even more astounding, he died to pay for your sins and be washed clean so you can have that relationship with him. All you need to do is, in response to this invitation, is to repent and believe the gospel. That is it. Turn from your sins and place all of your hope and all of your trust and all of your faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And when you do that, your sins are wiped away completely and you're given a brand new nature and you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that you can stand before God without any fear whatsoever. Because the truth is one day you will face him. And if that's not enough for you, when you put your faith in Christ, you were adopted into God's family as one of his beloved children. And you were given eternal life, everlasting life. And God himself, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of you. You're never alone, ever again. God is always with you, leading you, guiding you, comforting you, strengthening you, challenging you, changing you, and guaranteeing you that you are saved and you belong to God. That is what this king offers you right now in this moment. But here's the truth that you need to understand. I would, be, I would be shirking my duty if I didn't tell you this. This offer will not last forever. Because the time is coming when God's wrath against sin and against all who rebel against him will be poured out on them. And then it will be too late. Because make no mistake, Jesus is coming back. The king is coming back. Now exactly when that's going to happen, we don't know but we know for a fact that he is coming. And when he does come, it's going to be different than his first coming. You see, when Jesus first came, he came to die. But when he comes back, he's going to come to reign on the earth, not just from heaven. When he came at first, he came on a little donkey, but when he comes back, he's going to come on a war horse. When he came first, he was a humble servant, but he's going to come back as the exalted, undisputed king of all things. When he first came, he came in weakness. He's going to come in power. When he first came, he came to save, but now he's going to come to judge. When he first came, he came in love, but he's coming to pour out his wrath. When he first came, he came with 12 disciples. But when he comes now, he's going to be coming with an angel army. And he will put down all of the rebels against him. When he first came, he came to make peace. When he comes next time, he will come to make war. 
When he came the first time, they gave him a crown of thorns. And when he comes, he will receive a crown of royalty. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the undisputed Lord of all the universe. Believe me, brothers and sisters, and those who might not know him, you want to make peace with him now before he comes back or before you face him when you die because then it'll be too late. I beg of you, if you don't know Christ, I'm begging you, if you don't know Christ, if you've not already trusted in him, repent and believe the gospel today. Don't wait another day. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Another community member of ours is no longer with us. Somebody that we've not expected to die has died. It's a horrible tragedy. You don't know. Today is a day of salvation that Paul says, I urge you, I beg you, repent and believe the gospel. And if you need help with that, if you want to talk to somebody about that, come see me afterwards, call me, email me, Facebook me, I don't care. I will talk to you and I will share with you from the scriptures how you can have a relationship with Christ. Secondly, for those who do know Christ, he is the exalted king. He is your king. Say it with me. He's my king. Okay? Now live like it. Okay? Because do you really understand that he's the king? Have you really embraced the truth that he is the one who's in control and you're not in control? Right? Because this truth has to tell you about something about him and has to tell you something about you. Right? This truth should cause you to grow. You should understand him better and you should see in this truth your need for him. This truth right here by itself should cause you to let go of your fears. You're not in control. He is because he's the king. This truth right here should cause you to live in peace because you're not in control and he is. And, that he, and because he is, you can trust him. But even more than that, he loves you and he's promised to work all things out for your good. If you know him, he wants you to live in peace because he's the king. Now, if you're not living in peace, what I want you to do is to take some time and get alone with him and confess that he's the king and really spend time in his word and in prayer getting to know him and let his heart, let him strengthen your heart. Because once you finally relent and once you finally come to that place that he is the sovereign reigning king, and that nothing is outside of his control, and you can absolutely trust him no matter what, then that peace, that supernatural peace that, that surpasses understanding will begin to guard your heart. And then finally, I want you to, what I want you to see is, is now that we know this truth, how does it mobilize us? What do we do with this? How does knowing this truth about Jesus cause us to take action? Well, the, th the truth is, the king himself has called you every one of you, into his service. The king has called every one of you into his service, and he's given you clear commandments, like go and make disciples of all the nations. Are you actively working to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people that you come in contact with? Are you actively working to disciple someone else to help them to grow? That's the call, that we are all called to be a part of that. We're all called to be a part of the saving mission of Jesus Christ. So what are you doing about that? Are you sharing the gospel with someone? Are you discipling someone? And if the answer is no, then get alone with him and ask, why? Because the king has commanded this of you. Secondly, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And if that wasn't clear enough, he says, love your enemies. <laughs> and then he goes one step further for our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Are you living out that kind of love? It's a commandment from the king. Is that how you treat people? Is it a reflection of the commandment that he's given to love? Remember, this is not a suggestion. And if you're struggling with this kind of love, then you need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, you've got to change my heart. And help me to submit to you in this. I'm going to walk in this by faith, but you're going to have to change my heart. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to like it. I'm probably even going to be grumpy about it. But I'm going to walk in this. And I'm going to trust that you're going to change me through it because you're the king and I'm going to obey the king. 
And then he says, in, the third one is to forgive as you've been forgiven. Are you walking in the forgiveness of God? Are you extending the grace and the mercy that God has given you? The king, you know, hasn't made this as a suggestion. He didn't say, here's a recommendation for you. Jesus said, you are to forgive as you've been forgiven. It's a commandment from the king himself. And then finally, the fourth one is, let your light shine. That's what he said. Let your light shine before men. What are you doing in the service of God and, in, and, and for your community and for those who are in need around you? What are you doing in your life right now that's shining the light of Christ so that people can see the love of the King in you so they can turn to glorify God? I ask these questions because I don't know the answers for you. But this is my exhortation for you. The king has come and he reigns right now. And if you don't know him, turn to him in repentance and faith. And if you do trust in him, trust in him by growing in your knowledge of him and, 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 and let that knowledge bring you peace. And for those who really trust in him, right, know that he's calling you to action. And ask yourself this question. Are you going to go ahead and be obedient to what he's calling you to do? Or are you just going to keep ignoring him? That's the choice that's before you. I pray that you would obey him because he is the risen king. He's the king that died to set you free and he's the king who, who lives right now to give you life. He is all that you have and all that you ever need. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. You owe him. If you belong to him, your complete allegiance to him. Now, church family, go out and walk in that. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.